Alrighty. Um, got two mics here. You want to take one? And uh, if you have questions or any points you want to make or push back or anything from this morning's message or from anything in the last few weeks, now would be the time to do that. The mics are standing by. Oh, Greg Sweet. Since I was just going to comment on the and ask a question about the celebration that that God gives when a repenter repent when it, when a sinner repents, um, <clears throat> we we all know that nobody seeks God, so it's up to God to draw us draw us to Him. Do you believe it's possible to defy that call? Yes and no, depending on which author is writing. One of the, that sounds like a cop-out, but in the Gospels, J- Jesus on his lips, many are called, few are chosen. And, and in Acts, Stephen will accuse the Jewish leaders, you have resisted the Holy Spirit. So there is a sense in which God, I mean Paul, God has commanded, Paul in Acts, God has commanded all men everywhere to repent. I mean, people talk about God invites you. It's not as much an invitation as a summons. You can decline an invitation, you defy a summons. God has summoned us to his table. And, and the language of resistance is used in the Gospels. However, when Paul uses the same terminology, specifically in Romans, those he foreknew he called, those he called he, in that sense, there's a one-to-one correspondence between predestination, called justification, glorification. So, uh, yes and no, depending on what you mean. Well, it's just hard to understand why God would celebrate if it's all up to him. You that, know, oh, go. So, you know, if he, if he says, well, I know that Simeon's going to come to the Lord when he does, when God calls him mm. and, 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 and gives Simeon all of the strength, the understanding, the open eyes. Yeah it's sort of hard to understand why there'd be such great celebration if Simeon didn't have a choice. Indeed. Let me, let me take that head on. I, I get, totally get, I was talking actually to Pastor Daniel about this very thing this morning. I totally get um, the, the challenges there. Like I said, when I, when I got five minutes to talk to R.C. Sproul on a car once, that was the question I asked him about. Jesus lamenting over Jerusalem. Jesus, you just said, no one knows the Father or the Son except the one to whom the Father reveals. You rejoiced in that in chapter 10, and here you are weeping over Jerusalem. What gives? And, and D.A. Carson has a helpful treatment on this. I'll sort of come at this sideways. Um, in in the, what's called the difficult doctrine of the love of God. He's got a two-part message thing. I may post up on Facebook in a short little book. But what he basically says is that the, uh, and I think he's right, the New Testament, the Bible, can speak of God's love in at least five different ways. Not that they're like distinct, God is love one, love two, love three, but different ways, and we don't want to confuse them. So there is um, times where we see intra-Trinitarian love, the love for the Father for the Son, the love of the Son for the Father. And what makes that love unique is the Father loves the Son precisely because the Son is deserving of love. So Jesus can say things like, my father loves me because I always do those things that please him. So here we have a love that is warranted. There is a reason for it. And and Jesus loves the father. And so the intra-Trinitarian love has none of the redemptive categories that we associate with God's love to us. God's love to the son is not expressed through patience, grace, 
forgiveness, mercy. The son needs none of those things. So we, God's love for the son is distinct and different in, a, in essence, in, in, not in essence, in a sense from his love for us. Next would be God's love for his creation. He, not a sparrow falls to the ground apart from his will. He makes the rain fall on the just and the unjust. And so there's a sense in which God loves all of his creation. Um, he loves the sparrows. He loves the flowers. He loves the stars. And he, he loves the wicked in that sense. He demonstrates his love towards them. Then there's, I think what we're looking at in this passage, God's desirous love. God's heart desiring um, the salvation of the lost without distinction. So Ezekiel 18, um, do I have any delight in the death of the wicked? Would I rather not that they turn? And then there's God's love for the elect, God's covenant love for his people, which is distinct as well. In the Old Testament, God's chesed, his, his loyal covenant love, is always and only spoken of in relationship to his covenant people, his gospel love. Finally, that makes it any more complicated. There's a conditional love that the New Testament can speak of. We get really uncomfortable with this, but Jude tells us to keep yourself in the love of God. In John 15, Jesus says, if you abide in my word, um, you will, and he tells, sorry, not if you abide in my word, he says, abide in my love. As I abide in my Father's love and keep his commandments, you also abide in my love. With a distinct implication, you might not. And what Carson's point is, is this. We, we want to let different passages speak in different ways. The temptation or danger for us is to grab hold of one of those, flatten it out, and then force that in every context in every way. And so if you do that with, say, the providential love, you'll end up with some sort of green recycling view of love, where all that matters is stewardship of the planet, which is important. But if it's just, if all you've got is God's love for the creation, God loves the birds, and he loves the trees, and he loves you, and he loves me, and that's all you've got, then you're going to end up with something like that. And if you only end up with God's desiring love only, you will end up with a God who becomes finally, ultimately contingent. He's completely responding to us. It all depends on what we do. He just wants us to get saved, and that's all there is to it. There's no more to that story. And so it just depends on you, and it depends on me. And God's hoping, hoping will, will come in. If you only end up with God's electing love, then you really do end up with a God who loves the elect and hates everybody else. And if you only end up with, if you only have got God's conditional love, the, the, the family, keep yourself in the love of God, then you'll end up with questions like, was I good enough today for God to love me? So, that being said, I want to let the Bible speak in all those different ways. I get there's a mystery here. Totally get it. I don't understand emotionally how Jesus can, in chapter 10, celebrate God's electing love, rejoices in it. Like the disciples come back, the 72 come back, and in that very same hour, Jesus rejoiced in his spirit, um, saying, Father, you've hidden these things from the wise, revealed them to fools. For yes, Father, it was your good pleasure to do this. No one knows who the Father is except the Son. No one knows who the Son is except the one to whom the Father reveals him. So he's celebrating, rejoicing in God's hiding and God's revealing. And then he's mourning over Jerusalem. And we can either then say, well, um, this, this, this is stupid. Or, and I would suggest, perhaps God's emotional life is more complex than ours. Perhaps God's ability to have an emotional life is not less, but more complex and complicated than ours. Certainly, um, the, these challenges are not things that our generation is first seeing. I mean, they, they've always been there. Luke had to be aware of it. And so I think part of the wonder and mystery of God is here is a God who does declare the end from the beginning. Here's a God who does hide and reveal 
And here's a God who says, I'm like a peasant woman searching for a lost coin. And I just worship and just say, that's marvelous and wonderful. I could only imagine doing one of those two things. I could only picture one of those two things being true. Apparently they both are. I will fully grant to you the tension of how does that work? And just that's part of the mystery that I worship in God is that he's able, both of those are true. And I want to guard against holding onto one to the extent of flattening out the other one. And you'll see people doing that. You'll see people who are so sold on to say God's love for the elect that they'll try to even read into this passage, this has only got to be the elect that God feels this way about. The problem is he's talking to the Pharisees without any qualifications. He's talking without any qualifying of this. And so I, I don't want to tie it in and say, well, actually, this is really just a picture of, no, I don't think so. Uh, even his pleading with the older brother in the next parable, the father is going to appeal to the older brother. He's not going to smack him across the face. And the older brother's the Pharisees. So even the father in the next parable is going to yearn for reconciliation with the older brother and try to achieve that. We don't know what happens because the parable ends. So all that to say, I fully recognize the tension you see, and I would suggest that, that embracing that as God's bigger than I am is part of what we do by faith, or we can just conclude, you know, this is, this is stupid. Jesus is... is flipping back and forth here, or Luke doesn't know what he's doing in writing it. But you're absolutely seeing attention. I just say, okay, he's God, and apparently, yes, both are true, and, and move on. I, anyone want to add to that, or, or, or Serena wants to add to that? Well, no, no, microphone, girl. I get really excited when something oh. I plan. You got to turn the thing on, girl. Oh, it's on? I get really excited when something I plan to do comes out the way I plan to do it. Well, that was, that was Daniel's point from this morning. No, that was Daniel's point from this morning, is can God have any emotions whatsoever? Because if God's omniscient, if God knows everything that's going to happen, can God then respond with any emotion to anything? Because if you press that tension, that is where you end up with, a God who is a computer program. Because he knows everything, because he knows what's going to happen, there's no surprise. There's no, I knew that was going to happen. And his point was just saying, if you take that logic, you will end up with a flattened robot God. And if anything in Scripture, if Jesus images God, Jesus is an emotional person, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. So the, the logical conclusion of that type of, of press, solving the dilemma that way will be God can't have, and there, and there are people who've argued that, but it's called the impassibility of God, that God has no passions, no emotions, no um, emotional life whatsoever. That's all anthropomorphic language. It's all attempts of using human figures of speech to describe God. I mean, there are sects of Christianity that hold to that. I just think, yikes. Um, a, we're made in his image and we're emotional. Read the Psalms. You read, I just don't, I think you've got to rip way too much scripture out to say, oh, that's just all a nice human y way of speaking of God. Because just be, only because I can't conceive of how those two things fit together. So I'm just saying, I, I think the Bible says they fit together. Fully grant, I don't know how they fit together. But if we say they can't fit together, then we really have to cut God's emotional life entirely off, not just because of his sovereignty over election, but just omniscience would eliminate any legitimate response because he knew it was going to, it's like when you're watching a movie for the fifth time. Even though you know it's going to come, you still get excited, you still get scared, you still respond, and that's just us watching a movie. So anyway, anyone else want to add to that? 
I'll, I'll give you one other example. <laughs> my, friend, my friend Chris um, gave this example of, of ways of viewing God sovereignly, declaring the end from the beginning, God acting in history. Is like the difference between the author writing the story, but the author's putting himself in the story that he's writing. And so he'd say, what if God wants to write the story of how he longs for sinners? You wrap your head around that one. <laughs> but it's like, what if that's the story God wants to tell? What if God wants to tell the story of his yearning heart of love towards rebellious, sinful people? Can't God tell that story? If it's a true story. Um, and so here you can have, on the one hand, the author writing the story. But if the author is a actor in the story, you can get sort of both. And anyway, that's another way of trying to look at the perspectives of God in redemptive history and God sort of outside declaring the end from the beginning. But these are all clumsy, clunky um, human ways of trying to deal with what we'll frankly admit to be mysteries. Um, anyone else want to remember that at all? Oh, Bob. Well, I was initially thinking along the lines of the girl sitting in front of uh, um, Greg Sweet, uh, I was thinking about the A-team when, when the guy would always say, I love it when a plan comes together. And, George Babard. Yeah. But if you look at the passage in Romans, let's see, where is that at? Uh, 22 and 23 of chapter 9. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and he did so in order that he might make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand. And to me, this is kind of goes along with what John Piper likes to emphasize, and that is that the repentant sinner is coming to understand and comprehend. He's come to his senses, as you'll find out in the next, next part. Yeah. He's come to his senses and recognized who God is, and, and by virtue of all that has happened, he has... Um, he has demonstrated, the, the sinner has demonstrated the riches of God's glory. He's come to, come to terms with all that. Mm. So God rejoices in the fact that he, his glory is being made known through all these people. Mm. Well, and, absolutely, Bob, absolutely. And this, this plan of redemption has been in the mind of God and agreed upon between the members of the Trinity since before the world began. We don't get many glimpses into before creation, but Titus 1-2 gives us one. Paul talks about how he labors in the hopes of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before the ages began. We, we have to be looking at some intra-Trinitarian communication, one member of the Trinity promising something regarding this salvation to another. So this has been in plan for a long time. And as my wife pointed out, you know, just because you've planned something doesn't mean there's no joy when it finally happens. And the, the sun comes to earth and the sun is humbled and humiliated and he's going to suffer. And yet here now come the first um, fruits, to use James' language, of the payment, the reward for the, for the, the lamb's travail. Will there not be a joy as that comes in? You've planned this at great cost, at great suffering, this is being done, and now already here are some of the first fruits of what is being accomplished through that coming in. I, I, I can understand how I could plan something, know with certainty it's gonna happen, and still delight in it beginning to happen. Um, so, ab absolutely. Yes? Okay, I have a question. Um, yes. uh, on, in John 17, 
when Jesus is praying to the Father, um, and on the ver in verse nine, mm -hmm. it says, "I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and you, yours are mine, and I am glorified in them." And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may obey, so that they may be one, even as we are one. Mm. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the, in the world, that they, may have, that they may have my joy filled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me in the world, so I have sent them into the world. Basically, he's saying, like, he's not praying for the world, mm -hmm. but he's praying for his, the ones. So what does that supposed to mean? Oh, that. Yeah. I'm not trying to deny for a moment. Um, this, this gets back to why I tried to frame things with Carson's approach. Absolutely, the Bible speaks of, in ways and at times, and this is one of those, of Jesus' concern for the elect, for the, for the people that God has given him. And in John 17, he makes it very clear in verse 9, I am not praying for the world, yeah. but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. He's not praying for everyone without exception. He's praying for a specific group. And later he'll say, I have other sheep, not of this fold. I must get them as well, by which he means people like us. And so Jesus absolutely at times will speak in that regard. In John's gospel in particular, there's a lot of that. You're not my sheep, therefore my word does not abide in you. He does not say the opposite, that because my word doesn't abide in you, you're not my sheep. The cause and effect goes the other way. Because you're not my sheep, you can't bear what I'm saying. So absolutely, the New Testament and Jesus will speak and act in ways that, that are clearly focused and limited on the elect and on God's flock and his people. All I'm saying is I don't think that Luke 15 is one of those times. And I think it's both true. I think that John 3:16, for God so loved the world, or God's love is shown in this way, that he loved the world in this way. In John's gospel, the world is not a very, very big place as much as it's a very, very bad place. And so God's love is seen in contrast, not to the size, but to the sinfulness. And so I think it's hard, say in John 3.16, to suggest God's love for the world really just means God's love for his people. Even as we see in this passage, he's contrasting his people with the world. Don't take them out of the world. You see, the world's viewed as a hostile place, ethically. So in John 3.16, we've got God loving the world. And here we've got Jesus playing for his, praying for his people. And Carson's point, I think, is well taken, that we don't grab onto one and flatten the other out. At times, God speaks truly and truthfully of his general desire for all to come. All are invited. We're to preach the gospel to all of creation. None will be turned away. And at other times, we see Jesus right here focusing on those whom the Father gives him out of the world. And 
So I think we've got to go case by case, text by text, what are we looking at here? So I absolutely, and by no means trying to minimize, I by no means want Luke 15 to minimize John 17, but I also don't want the opposite to happen and have John 17 minimize Luke 15. Um, I, I think they can both exist in tension without having to press down the one or the other. So nothing I've said today, I hope, minimizes um, or pushes to the side the truth of, of God's elect, God's choice of them, Jesus' concern for them. That, that's all true, absolutely true. And I think God's searching and calling all to come. I, I think the Bible lays both of those things out. And then I also have another question. Yes. Um, it says in John 17 again, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Does that mean that keep them in your name, in the name of Jesus Christ? Name, in this concept, is less what the particular vocalization of someone's name is, as much as the character, desire, will. So when we pray in Jesus' name, it's not a magic, because I've met people that think, well, you're not saying Yeshua, and that's Jesus' name. I don't, I, that's not what he's getting at. His name is in keeping with his will, in keeping with his um, identity, his values, who he is. So if you come in the name of someone, I come in the name of you know, the king of Scotland or whatever. You're coming in their authority and in their will to do their will. Keeping them in God's name is keeping them in his plan, his purposes, his desire for them, I, I believe, in that context. Not a particular vocalization of consonants and vowels. No, I mean, like, oh. in the name of Jesus Christ, because in the name of Jesus Christ, every knee will bow. Yes. So that Jesus Christ, uh, and he says, keep him in your name, which you have given me, does that mean like God named Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, so? I, I think in this context, the name is again less about any particular title of the members of the Godhead as much as insofar as the members of the Godhead share the same purpose, share the same values, share the same will, share the same desire, share the same purpose, in that context, they're indistinct. So I don't think it's an issue of is this the name of the Son or the name of the Father or the name of the Holy Spirit. I think this is more the will, purpose, desires, plan, values of God. Keep them in your name. Keep them in that. Um, that's, that's my... I'd and be happy then, to go and study John 17 further, but off the cuff, that's as good as I got at the moment. And Are then you, also okay. another question is like, why did he send the Holy Spirit in his name? Also, in Jesus Christ's name... So everything is, like, I feel like everything is done in Jesus Christ's name. And he says, whatever you do, do it in, in my name, in Jesus Christ's name. Why is that so important? Um, again, I'm, you're, you're casting me off, off <laughs> cuff. So if my answer is not particularly deep or profound, I apologize in advance. I don't think, um, again, when we're talking about doing things in his name, I don't think the issue, I mean, I know people who do this. I know there's one version of Christians, one sect, who they baptize three times. In the name of the Father, baptize. In the name of the Son, baptize. In the name of the Holy Spirit, baptize. But in Matthew, the name is singular. Anima there is singular. 
So there's one name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so when we do things in his name, I, my default would be, I'm happy to study it and I could be persuaded otherwise, but my default assumption is we're talking about that one name. There's a sense in which the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit share one name. We baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. I could be wrong on that. I haven't studied it in detail, but that's, that's, so when it speaks of that one name, I'm taking that to mean, again, the identity notion of value, purpose, as in coming in the name of the King of Sweden or something. Um, not, well, what is his name? Is it Reginald? No, 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 I'm coming in his name. That type of thing. But we can talk afterwards. I just, that's as far okay, as I can go right okay, now. And okay. my, no, and if my answer is, you just caught me off guard on something I'm not studied up on. So we can go. Yes. And he has the name of Jesus Christ. So when, when we accept Jesus Christ, uh, what is that word that we accept Jesus Christ? Like he comes to live in, in our hearts. He, Jesus Christ himself. So um, that's why he rejoices when people repent, I believe, because he's, they're accepted into his kingdom of God. Mm. Yeah. No, that's, I'm trying to make sure I crack everything the same, but I don't see anything that I would disagree with. So. Other questions? Oh, in the back, Wanda Cowan. Well, I was just kind of going off what she said. Could you say that when he says, in my, do these in my name, that he wants you on this earth to be doing his will, and like if you do something good for someone, it isn't so they'll think you're a good person, but they'll see Christ through you. Is that kind of maybe a simple way of that? I, I, th I think so, yes. In that degree, that fits with we're ambassadors. Ambassador mm -hmm. doesn't get to negotiate policy. They simply mm -hmm. deliver the message. Mm -hmm. um, and so if we're ambassadors, we're acting in the name of the power the authority in which we were sent or commissioned. Mm -hmm. So if I'm functioning as Christ's ambassadors, if that's my new identity, all things are new and I'm an ambassador for Christ, then I do things in the name mm -hmm. of the God who sent me, in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit, so that my acts of love are seen to be extensions of God's acts of love, that my acts of kindness are meant to see as extensions right. of God's acts of kindness. I'm doing it in his name. Yeah. Um, less a concern about a particular vocalization than a identity and purpose. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Okay, anybody else? Oh, Mr. Walter. This is, excuse me. <coughs> uh, this is just my personal experience in thinking through this whole issue of what is my part in salvation? What is God's part in salvation? It talked, you know, when I, early on, um, John 1, 12, to, to as many as received, to those who gave the right to become children of God. Mm. Through my experience, I had people say, well, it's your choice. You, you need to do something. And as time went by, as I studied and was challenged on the other side, that apart from God, I can do nothing. One thing that was very encouraging to me as I tried to 
to wrestle through this mystery. And by the way, thank you for pointing out those different aspects of, of God's love, because that was very refreshing. But Th- Thank Carson, not me. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, yeah. that just sharing that thought, that, that's really good. But when I, when I came to understand that it is really God that did that work in my life, it wasn't so much that I was smart enough to receive Christ. It was that God reached out to me and I did nothing to deserve it. And when I fully understood or God revealed that aspect of what he did for me, my salvation became so much more valuable and my opinion of God became he was so much more magnificent because he did that for me and I didn't deserve it. And so God's awesomeness, God's magnificent became so much greater. Mm. Anyway. Amen and amen and amen. That's one of the interesting things that is, is in these parables, the three parables that show up. The first two the found object is completely inert. The sheep isn't looking, uh, certainly a coin's not looking. And so the, the work, the initiative of the father seeking, sending his son seeking, is emphasized in the first two. In the third, we do see what the found person does. So it's not, we, if without the third parable, we might think we're completely passive. We do nothing God finds or he doesn't find us. In the parable of the prodigal son, we still see the father out looking on the roads, running, Um, The father is still, in that parable, active searching, but we also see now, finally, what, from the perspective of the one being found, their part in it. And so there is a clearing of oneself. There is a repentance. I will go to my father and I'll say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you. I mean, we see him coming to his senses, and we're still even, and I think that's part of the reason it's the third parable, there is a sense in which even that coming to his senses is evidence of God's seeking work. Um, just as Jesus says in the last verse of chapter 14, he was ears to hear, let him hear, linking back to chapter 8, verse 10, where he makes it clear to his disciples, when I say that, what I'm saying is some of you, God's got a gift to hear, and others he's not. So even that phrase is laden with um, sovereign grace. So... We're to understand these tax collectors and um, sinners coming to Jesus to hear him as being sovereignly gifted by God to be able to do that by the way he phrased it at the end of 14. So absolutely an amen. Other thoughts or a haiku or abuse or questions too, that'll, 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 questions will be fine. Okay. No, no, microphone. There's, there's not many, but there are a few people who listen to the podcast. I mean, we're never going to have one of the, we're never going to be featured on iTunes like top podcasts, but there are a good dozen or so people who, uh, so we'll try to be faithful to them. Was it yes. Acts 2 or 3? Uh, where Peter. Um, Peter in Acts says, um, I wonder why, like, he's telling every, uh, like, people, I baptize, uh, to baptize, he says, baptize in the name of Jesus Christ. Um, why is that? And then also Paul himself said uh, he baptized people in the name of Jesus Christ. But then in Matthew it says, uh, go out and baptize in the name 
of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So, but then the apostles themselves, when in Acts, they baptize in the name of Jesus Christ. So that's another question that I always uh, had, like right now, especially been uh, wrestling with sure. in my walk with Christ. Sure. And I, when I, shortly after I became a Christian, I came across a guy who believed that the only proper mode of baptism was in the name of Jesus, and he began rebaptizing people that I knew who'd been baptized Trinitarianally. Trinitarianally? Who'd been baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. No, 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 you need to be baptized in the name of Jesus only. And no, this, this was a guy who was kind of out there. Um, again, I, I, I think if we think the question is what syllables, what vocalization must we pronounce when we baptize, we probably, if that mattered, should be speaking in Greek and Hebrew, um, not English. Um, I, I think if you understand name to mean the commissioning, whose name do you come in? I come in the name of the Son. I come in the name of the Father. I come in the name of the Holy Spirit. It's not salvation itself from the triune God. Could we not say the salvation is from the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? But you could also say it's from the Son. It's true. I come in the name of the Son. Baptize them in the name of the Son and His authority. I, so I don't see any issue there with whether you're, they're baptizing him in the name of Jesus, whether they're baptizing him in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, because God is one. There's no division of purpose. There's no division of authority. There's no division of plan or value. So, yeah, I come in the name of the Father. Yes, I come in the name of the Son. Yes, I come in the name of the Holy Spirit. I come in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Yes. Okay. So, so, so if you take it like that, there's no issue. Now, if it really matters what name you say when you dunk someone underwater, then you are going to have more of a problem of, is it Jesus or the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? And then some people try to resolve that by baptizing three times. My other person I knew solved it by rebaptizing people in the name of Jesus. And I think all of that's kind of missing the point. But go. Yes. So basically, I know that the only way you get salvation is you have to repent and accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. Then you're sealed. That's the main thing. Right. You're supposed to, that's the main thing. Then you're, you're baptized through the fire. But baptism is only like a sign to show that you're saved. Yes. So that's what I believe. So you believe that it's okay um, if, if the believer thinks they should be baptized a certain way, that they should go ahead and do it? Like baptized, for example, if they feel like God is leading them to be baptized in the name of Jesus only. I don't, do, I you don't, don't see any issue with that? Well, certainly unless they're, I mean... It, Unless, if somebody says, I want to be baptized in the name of Jesus, if they're asking me to do the baptism, what I think is going to enter into that equation, but sure, fine. I'm not going to be like, well, that wasn't insufficient. You didn't get baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You just, no, you got baptized in the name of Jesus, and there's biblical warrant for that. I have no problem with that. Okay. Um, I likewise, we baptize, when we baptize here, we generally follow the pattern of the baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There's biblical warrant for that in Matthew. Um, so I got, I got no problem with either one. Both of them seem biblical to me, and I don't think uh, at the end of the day what matters is the, the vocalization that's spoken when we do it. So, yeah, I, I, I don't see any distinction between baptizing in the name of Jesus and baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Um, I mean, if the names matter, most Christians I know don't know what Christ means. I mean, you've heard me say it enough, so maybe you do, but when I first asked people, when I was going around the youth group and other times, most people didn't know it meant Messiah, and, and they certainly didn't know what Messiah meant, anointed, and so when we said, you've got to believe Jesus is the Christ, you have to believe Jesus is the anointed. Well, if the names matter, then if you don't know what anointed means, you're not saved, if the names matter, because you've got to believe Jesus is the Christ.
right? Yeah. So, so I, I, I think you run into weird places if you get, I mean, I've met people hung up on the names. I'm not saying you are. Um, I've met some folks who get really hung up on that. They're convinced that Jesus' name is Yahushua or something, and they make a big deal out of it. You're not calling God by his right name, and you're not, and just, like, dude, you're still speaking English, so until you start speaking Hebrew and Greek to me, you're not taking it seriously either. It's kind of how I want to respond to them. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't think, um, I mean, if we were Greek, it's not Jesus, it's Iesus. Um, you got to believe in Iesus. The, the yes sound becomes J, it comes through Germanic into English and anyway. Um, so I, I, don't, I don't think ultimately any of that is critical. Whether you call Jesus Joshua, Yeshua, Iesus, or Jesus, I think all that's fine, given the right context, or in other languages, however that's going to come across. Um, Jose, right? Um, so yeah, I wouldn't call Jesus... Um, Jose, right? Is that how it comes across? No, it's not that. It's, no. Jesus. Oh, sorry, brain cramp. I, I, whenever I'm done preaching, my brain's kind of scrambled. But Jesus, right? But in the right context, absolutely. You'd be, you'd be praying to Jesus. Um, so I, I don't think any of that ultimately matters. I wouldn't go correct someone who is Spanish. Um, you know, you're saying it wrong. I don't, I don't think that's the issue. So anyway, that's... That's kind of my, my... I just, uh, like, yeah. one thing that's really... Uh, the reason why I've been talking a lot about this yeah. is because my, his cousin Heather said that <laughs> she believes in the name of Aung San Hong, and that's totally wrong. Um, I believe that it's in the name of Jesus, because it says, in the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow right. under the earth and be, on the earth and below the earth. And I believe, like, I feel like the, when I was so scared, I was like, okay, she was trying to kind of she was saying we need to keep the Passover. So I felt like she was kind of misleading me. Um, so I prayed to God and I said, God, please reveal to me what your name is. You say in the name of Jesus, in the name of the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I felt like he told me that through his Holy Spirit that we are named like the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are united under one name and that's Jesus Christ. I don't so, think the name of the Holy Spirit is Jesus Christ. I think the name of the Son is Jesus Christ. I don't think the name of the Father is Jesus Christ. Um, okay. I, we, we can talk more afterwards. Okay. Um, but, I mean, one last thing with the name. Well, you hear the term Yahweh. Um, that's our best guess at how to vocalize God's divine name. We know what the consonants are, the tetragrammaton. We know what the, we know what the consonants are. But we take the vowel pointings, which were added in the 9th century A.D., because you were supposed to know how to do it. We take the vowel pointings from Adonai, superimpose them over the Tetragrammaton, and we end up with Yahweh. It might be right, but we don't know. We don't know a certainty. So even Yahweh is our best guess at how to pronounce, how to vocalize the name God revealed to Moses at Sinai, at, at the burning bush. So if, if it ultimately boils down to knowing the right vocalization, we're, we're in trouble. Um, Okay, we've got five minutes. Any, anybody else? Steve, I know you got a question. You said you had a question. Give the man the mic. He also told me he was going to be the last question. So, um. Well, you know, I teach school. Do when you I now? do teach school, I teach animal science. And we talk about sheep. And uh, last year I had a student refer to this scripture. Mm. Why are sheep referred to humans in the Bible? And I said, that's because sheep have no natural defense against 
their enemy. Yeah. That's why they need a shepherd, i.e. we need Jesus. And they're stupid. And then turn, he turned around and he said, well, when, when Jesus referred to that lost sheep, was he talking about a Democrat sheep or a Republican <laughs> sheep? All right. Steve, Democrats so, are goats. Do I? No, just joking. Goats are just different. Joking. They can defend just themselves. Just joking. I'm com- right. that, sorry. That was just a joke. Sorry. Go. So I said, well, and, and you verified it for me down here. I think I was right on my answer. Okay. I said, I think he was a Democrat when he left the flock. But when he was recovered, <laughs> he repented and turned into a Republican. Because you said God celebrates over repentance of a sinner. Yes, sir. And since sheep are humans, was I right in saying that to him? We're going to be getting out early this morning. And yes, Serena, Serena's got the, oh, no, no, microphone, baby. I'm going to take the fifth. No. Um, That's what Daniel said you would say when I asked him that earlier. He said he ain't going to answer that. There are five, there are so many, um, okay, no. Yeah, so many amendments that are great, but no. Um, I, no, no, I do, no, I, no, I do, no, I do, want, I do want to say something. Um, I think that, uh, what's his name, Carl Truman has got a book called Republicrat. Um, it's a series of essays, and he's a British expat living in America, and he's lamenting how polarized our system is, because the absolute litmus test nowadays for the Democratic Party is abortion, and gay rights movement, right? And so I, I don't see how a faithful Christian can pass that litmus test. So one does wonder how somebody could be a Democrat who's encountered other Democrats, because that's the first place they go is where you're at on these two issues. But I don't think that automatically means that every good Christian is going to be a Republican. Um, I think there's plenty of problems with the Republican Party. Um, so so it's, he's bemoaning, he's saying as a British guy, he's got parts of him that, that sympathize with some of the Democratic Party's platform. I mean, and he's like, but they kick him out and they won't have anything to do with him because he won't pass their litmus test on abortion and on gay marriage. But then the Republicans find out some of his leanings on social issues and they won't have anything to do with him either. And so he's just kind of like, this, this stinks because neither party will have anything to do with me. So... Um, I, I think it's too easy to kick it one way or the other. Yeah, I don't think there's any room for compromise on, on the issues of, of abortion and gay marriage. And as those currently are the, um, the shibboleths of uh, the Democratic Party, the shibboleth was the word that when they, Israel had a civil war and they wanted to figure out who is who, at the brook they're trying to cross, you had to say shibboleth. And if you were from the north, you'd say it one way. If you're from the south, you'd say it the other way. And then they'd figure out who is who, and you couldn't f- fool them that way. And it became like a, a passcode to get across. And so, yeah, those two issues have become a shibboleth for the, uh, for the Democratic Party. And it's a shibboleth I don't see how any faithful Christian can pass. That said, I'm not a huge fan of the Republican. I mean, the Republican Party has not impressed me with what they've been up to for the last couple of years. So, so next time I'm asked that question yeah. in class, should I say Democrat and Libertarian then? No, 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 no. I'm not of Paul or of Peter or of, no. Um, I said that because your wife. Ah, okay, okay. Um, <laughs> well, that was an interesting note. Um, we actually may have time for one more question, and it's got to be a short one. Ron in the back. Um, in my line of work, I constantly deal with the dark side and so um, politically mm-hmm. and so my view has always been as a conservative not necessarily um, a political party just mm-hmm. like you said 
I have significant problems with people who say they will change, for example, the abortion issue or stand up for um, family values, yet when they have the opportunity, fail to do it. So um, from my perspective, like they talk about draining the swamp, I think both parties are, you know, embedded in the swamp and neither one have the intestinal fortitude to uh, take a stand, you know, like um, Jesus requires us to do. A pox on both houses. And with that, we will call it a day. Um, indeed. A little quoting of Shakespeare right at the end there. Okay, thank you very much. Um, and at 12 o'clock, the photo sessions will begin for those who are signed up. Thank you much.